So Judges chapter 3 tonight. And I want to tell you a couple things. As we open the pages of the book of Judges, we're still early in this study. We've only done a bit. But there are a couple things that we notice right away. And the first thing is, I'm going to throw a couple of big words at you. I think you can handle it. The Wednesday night crowd tends to be able to handle a little more. (laughs) The first one is that the judges are anthropomorphic. Anthropomorphic. In other words, they are fallible human beings. They are just men. And in one case, just a woman. Nothing unique. Nothing special about them. Nothing any different than you or me. The deliverers are deficient. They do deliver Israel. And they accomplish some amazing feats. But the deliverers are deficient. We're going to look at the first three judges tonight. And the study could be called Three Men and a God. Or Three Little Men and One Big God. Because everything that they accomplish, everything they do is by the power of the Lord, not by the power of man. And I say that because as Christians, as human beings, sometimes we get stuck believing that it's in our power that we accomplish what we accomplish. The danger of that is when we fail, then we figure we're lost. The danger is when we succeed... We become somewhat arrogant because we have grown in our self-righteousness and we need to recognize the power is the Lord's always, from first to last. Every good thing that I accomplish, everything that succeeds in my life is the power of God at work in me and only His power. And He deserves all the focus and all the praise. What's wonderful about these judges, these deliverers, and remember that's what the word judge means, Shofatim, the judges, means deliverers. And that's truly what they are. Not men who sit with black cloaks and gavels, but they are men who probably should have capes because they are like superheroes. But for all that they accomplish, what they have, what they have is a willingness to put their lives in the hands of God. They're not qualified. You're going to see that tonight. They're not qualified for what they do. Their abilities are pretty quirky at best. But they have a willingness to put what they have into God's hands. And that's a rarity in these times. Both in these times and in these times. A willingness and a desire to put what we have into the hands of God and ask Him to lead out. To take the simple things, whatever it is that we have in our hands... And say, God, this is, this is all I have, but it's yours. This is what I bring. It doesn't seem like much to me. I can make soup. Can you use that? I can roof houses. Can you use that, Lord? I can teach. Can you use that? I can sing. Can you use that? I'm a fast runner. Can you use that? Whatever it is that we have in our hands, Lord... Can you use that? I think we all know the answer. Of course he can. Because he's the one who gave us that gift, that strength, that ability in the first place. So the judges are anthropomorphic. They're just men. But something else we notice right at the beginning of Judges is the people are anthropocentric. Anthropo, it's it's the Greek, we get it from the Greek word anthropos, it means man. They are man-centered. Man is at the center of all things 
for the people in the book of Judges. Judges 17.6, the key verse. Danny just told me tonight, and I appreciate that. I needed it for the study. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the key verse of this book. You will think about this verse, or should, again and again and again as we move through these pages. In those days, there was no king. Now the illusion, the the indication there is there was no king as in the Lord was not seen by the people as king. They didn't yield to his authority, his sovereign will. There was no king in Israel, just judges who were raised up saving the people. But the key gang is that every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so we will watch Israel vacillate between periods of slavery and then judicial rule and then anarchy. For 400 years through the book of Judges, things are unstable. Over time, the Jewish people will learn to be less man-centered and more God-centered. In fact, and this is really important in Bible study, in fact, this is almost to set your Bibles aside and listen for a moment, is the key to understanding Scripture and the study of the Word. There's a complete difference between the Hebrew and the Greek mindset. The Hebrew mindset is is very distinct. That is the way the Jewish person thinks, the way Jewish history caused the Jewish people over time to think and to consider the world. Whereas the Greek mindset is also very different. What do you mean, Rick? Listen, the Hebrew mindset historically became theocentric, God-centered. And that God was the beginning and the end of all things. That is for the faithful Jew. It began and it ended with God. The decisions of life, the movements, the will, it was all about God. It was theocentric theology, theocentric belief. That's Hebrew thinking. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 should say it all. In the beginning, God. Do we need to say any more? And the Bible ends with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Isaiah 45, verse 5. The Lord says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And he says, I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising of the setting sun, or from the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light... And creating darkness, causing well-being, and creating calamity, I am the Lord who does all these things. And that's Hebrew thought. Middle Eastern Hebrew thought is theocentric. It is all about God. You know, it's not just Hebrew thought. It is Middle Eastern thought in, in a big way. Because Islam does the same thing. Except that their God is a lie. Except that the God of Islam, Allah, is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But they are theocentric, are they not? This is the one thing our country still has failed to recognize as we battle forces in the Middle East. We're out there fighting a national or an international war, and they are fighting a religious war. Because everything about in their lives is theocentric. It's, it's their God-centered. What Allah says, and unfortunately what Allah says in the Quran is kill the infidel, so the towers fell. Kill the infidel, so we are losing men and women in Iraq because they are, in the Middle East, theocentric. But it's very much a Hebrew mindset. Now if you go, well how can it be Hebrew and be Arab? 
Just remember that the Hebrews and the Arabs came from the same place. They do both draw their history back to Abraham, who had two sons, Isaac, that God recognized. In fact, God called him Abraham's only son, even though he had had another son, Ishmael, by his maidservant, not by the plan of God. But these two lines then began on down through time. And furthermore, another break off from the line of Isaac, Jacob and Esau. Esau, the father of the Edomites, and the people continued on down from there. There's a continuation in the Arabic world from Lot, as we're going to see tonight. And so there is a similarity, at least from where the Arabs and the Jews have come from. They are, in a past tense sense, (laughs) brothers. And so it's that way of thinking. It's theocentric. But when it comes to Western thought, rather than having this theocentric mindset, we have a Greek mindset. In America, in Europe, our mindset is Greek. That's how we think. It's anthropocentric. It is man-centered. And consider America. Are we not a man-centered nation? Isn't it about my freedom? Isn't it about my rights? And what I am able to do? Don't I have the, the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? For me, I am anthropocentric. That is the way we think. We are the center of our own universe. Socrates, Aristotle, and later even the Christian philosophical schools of guys like Augustine coming out of Alexandria propagated this enlightened, human-centered way of thinking. Man-centered rather than God-centered. That is our Western worldview and everything revolves around me, my likes, my dislikes, my interests, and my needs. And gang, when we come to the study of the Bible, even there in Christianity, we tend to look at it from a man-centered perspective instead of God-centered. What do you mean? Well, if we looked at it from a God-centered perspective... We would say, the Lord says this, and I don't understand it, but it doesn't matter because the Lord says it. A man-centered perspective says, the Lord says this, and I don't understand it. So I'm not sure I can do that until I understand it. The Lord says, believe, and you will see. I say, I want to see, and then I'll believe. It's the difference between the way we in our Greek mentality... Well, I'm not Greek. No, but you're American. And if you're American and you came from, in your past, Europe, we are heavily influenced by Greek thinking. Rome was massively influenced by Greek thought. And it had a pervasive influence on the whole world. It's interesting when Jesus, by the way, showed up. In history... Just as that Greek mindset, the Hellenistic mindset, as is talked about in the book of Acts, was really beginning to take a hold, Jesus shows up just in time, just in time to bring that Hebrew way of thinking with him and to get the message out before the Greek thinking literally overtook the landscape. It's important to understand, even in our approach. I, I saw this article today. Actually, a couple days ago, my, my mother-in-law, what's, what's great about Sharon is she, uh, she reads the newspaper, all kinds of papers, voraciously, and she always is cutting out articles. Oh, did you see this? Did you see that? And so I usually have this little stack of articles, and I just keep it on my desk, and if I have a chance, I read them. And if not, paper, airplanes, you know, whatever. But she found this one, and it's interesting, out of Useless Today on Monday, April 23rd, dissatisfaction and yearning make churchgoers switch. 
The faithful are restless. A new study of Protestant churchgoers suggests they're switching from church to church powered by a mix of dissatisfaction and yearning according to the study by Lifeway Research. Lifeway, you ladies have been doing the Beth Moore study. That's Lifeway. Okay. Says the organization is part of the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant domination, uh, denomination domination, isn't that great? Denomination. <laughs> Most of the switchers who change their house of worship without making a residential move, which by the way is 58%, say their old church failed to engage their faith or put their talents to work or it seemed hypocritical or judgmental. Here are a couple of statistics. I'm not going to read this whole thing, but it's an interesting uh, point they're making. 51% of people who leave churches leave, listen to this, because they are disenchanted with the pastor. That's a lot of pressure. 51% say the pastor just wasn't doing it for me, man. 44% say it wasn't fulfilling their needs. Man-centered, not God-centered. Why do they choose a new church? Well, 89% thankfully say it's because of the beliefs or the doctrines of the church. So that's good. That, that's actually good news to me that nearly 90% of people who go to a new church are looking at the beliefs and doctrines first. Good. At least there's some good thinking going on. But I would think, shouldn't that switch around? If someone is compelled to leave a church, shouldn't it be because doctrinally there's a problem? I understand that. When someone's studying through the scriptures and, and the teaching is not biblical and the belief system of the church cannot line up with scripture or does not line up with scripture, I understand saying, wait a minute, i got to protect my heart, my family. I want to follow what the Lord says, not what man says. And if what you're saying is not what the Lord is saying, then I'm going to go somewhere where the Lord is saying what needs to be said and where the word is being taught. I understand that. But this whole idea, I, I, I just don't like the pastor. He offended me. He didn't show up when I was in the hospital. He didn't call when I was sick. He didn't change my tire when I was on the side of the road. I mean, anything, you know. Disenchantment with the pastor <laughs> wasn't fulfilling their needs or the reasons they attended. This is why the study of the Torah first five books of the Bible that we've been through the study of the Torah is so critical to understanding the Lord as Christians not just critical for Jews and it's funny to me I've run into several facts just this last weekend I baptized Jenna Harris Ben and Jenna Harris just got married well Jenna was raised Jewish and her mother who is still Jewish was there at the baptism which I thought was really cool and I was talking to her afterwards and she made a comment that she said I don't think I've ever heard of a Christian church that's taught the Torah and I thought about that and I thought that probably is pretty rare we Christians spend most of our times in the New Testament but I encourage you you can't understand the New Testament in its full rich Hebrew heritage unless you study the Old or the Older Testament is probably a better way to put it the Older and the Newer Testament so this study of Torah, part of the reason we studied it and went through it, and by the way, I wasn't smart enough to figure this out. This is, I'm looking back with hindsight, and recognizing the value of that study through the first five books and continuing on in the Older Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is that it impacts our worldview, and we begin to get more and more of a theocentric mindset, and that is incredibly healthy as Christians. We stop looking at ourselves and thinking about our needs because over and over we find ourselves running across the Lord saying, do this. And we, and we just respond, 
I'm not sure I understand. And we see people like Abraham who God said, I want you to move from Ur. Abraham was a pagan gang. He was a polytheist. His family worshipped many gods. And the one true God plucks him out and says, I want you to go to a place of promise because I'm going to do a new thing here. And Abraham, not understanding why, not having the proof, just believed God and said, okay, I'll go. Theocentric. I'm going to do this because you said so, not because I understand it. Romans chapter 11 verse 17 speaks of our Jewish heritage. What? I'm not Jewish. If you're in Christ, you have a rich Jewish heritage. Romans 11.17 says, If some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel, and you, Gentile believers, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. The very grounding of our faith comes directly from the Hebrew mindset Jesus was a Jew born and raised in the lineage of the tribe of Judah son of Abraham son of actually Jacob but you know you know what I'm saying back to Abraham Isaiah chapter 51 verse 1 listen to me you who pursue righteousness who seek the Lord let me ask you tonight do you pursue righteousness I'm not saying are you righteous but are you a pursuer of righteousness man I am I'm a messed up pursuer of righteousness, but I'm still pursuing. You who pursue righteousness, and you who seek the Lord, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Oh, the rock, that's Jesus, right? Well, the Hebrew writer says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him, and then I blessed him, and multiplied him. And God says to the Jewish people through Isaiah the prophet, Look to Abraham, remember your roots. Well, gang, we've been grafted into those roots. And it's healthy for us as Christians to develop that Hebrew mindset, that theocentric, God-centered way of thinking. So keep this in mind through our study. It's not just the lack of a king that causes trouble for Israel in the book of Judges. It's the self-centered approach to life that blinds Israel and us to that sovereign, perfect will of God. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when I'm doing what's right in my own eyes, I cannot see what God is doing. Now, as we continue on in chapter 3, this is exactly what we find with the Jewish people with Israel. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. Only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. These nations are the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Zidonians and the Hivites who lived in Mount Lebanon, that's all the way up in the north, Lebanon today, from Mount Baal Hermon, Mount Hermon today, also in the north, as far as Lebo Hama. They were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Now the writer of Judges, again, probably Samuel, gives two reasons why the Lord left these pockets of resistance, these hot spots there in the land, why he left them for Israel to clear them out. 
instead of just nuking the land entirely think about it with God's power he could have done it he could have snapped his finger and every inhabitant of the land could have just disappeared off the face of the land and Israel could have wandered right on in there safe and secure and, and peaceful no problem he didn't why did he leave these these Canaanites in there in pockets of resistance number one to build their strength militarily to build them up there's a whole generation now of people remember the generation of Joshua and and all that lived with him and, and the elders at his time that generation followed the Lord and trusted the Lord but once that generation passed away moved on died off now this new younger generation who did not fight in these wars of Canaan in those seven years of taking the land they're now growing up young men and women and so the Lord says I'm going to leave some pockets of resistance because they need to learn how to fight they need to learn how to hold what they have been given not just taking the land but holding the land as Jerry Seinfeld said one time when when going to get a car that he had reserved and the car was not there he said to the lady behind the desk I don't think you know how to take how to hold a reservation she says I, I know how to hold a reservation he says I don't think you do so you know how to take the reservation anyone can just take the reservation but you got to hold the reservation the holding is really the most important part for those of you who have ever rented a car you can relate but that's the problem with Israel you can take it and that's fine to take the land but you've got to hold the land and now this next generation has to learn to fight so they can hold the land so they can beat away the enemy as they come in and they do come in by the way the Lord provides the exact same kind of training for you and for me as well listen to Paul's encouragement to young pastor Timothy 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 12 fight the good fight of the faith take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses in 2 Timothy again he says 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 3 suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ using that that soldier that, that fighting metaphor he says no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier Paul in that Hebrew mindset gang is theocentric listen again no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life that's man-centered thinking that's Greek thinking anthropocentric but he says so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier theocentric thinking Paul's a Jew remember he said I'm a Hebrew among Hebrews of the tribe of Benjamin I was of the Pharisees the strictest sect of our people Paul said born and raised in it I was a strong Jew he has that Jewish mindset and it's good it's healthy also by the way Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18 he wrote about six implements of our military training for spiritual warfare he draws off this metaphor this picture Israel is here in the land they have to learn militarily and so God leaves them people to fight so they can grow in strength same for us and Paul says we need to put on and you can look this up later but the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace and the helmet of salvation bearing the sword of the spirit with prayer and petition a lot of times the prayer gets left off but that is one of our most powerful in fact it's one of our two offensive weapons 
the sword of the spirit and prayer are the two weapons we have to take to the enemy to go against the enemy the others are all defensive breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace helmet of salvation belt of truth but these last two sword of the spirit and prayer those are our offensive weapons to take it to the enemy so there's a military reason for the remnants of the enemy being left behind that the people would learn how to hold the land secondly secondly Samuel tells us in Judges that they are to build their strength morally look at verse 4 these people, these nations, they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers through Moses. Now that word testing is important. You Bible students might say, wait a minute, I thought the Lord didn't test anyone. Not so. The Bible says the Lord doesn't tempt anyone. But the Bible very clearly says the Lord does test us. What's the difference? James chapter 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. End of story. God is not a tempter. So what's the difference between being tempted or being tested? Being to tempt is to provoke to evil. Temptation is when we are provoked or lured into evil. Or in the direction of wickedness. To test is not to provoke, it's to prove. To tempt is to be provoked, to test is to be proven. It reveals the nature or the faith of the person. That's why, by the way, God gave the law in the first place. To test us, to prove us, to show us what righteousness truly was and to show us that we couldn't achieve it in and of ourselves Romans chapter 5 verse 20 Paul said the law came in so that the transgression would increase but where sin increased grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord so the Lord doesn't provoke man to sin but he does want to prove the heart of man a testing a proving of our faith The law doesn't provoke man to sin. It proves the heart of man. It reveals our propensity to sin. And by the way, it also proves the perfection of Jesus Christ who kept every single letter of the law perfectly in his life. Jesus was proven before he died that perfect sacrifice for us. Now listen closely. You might want to jot this down if you're a note taker. Nobody falls into sin. Nobody falls into sin. We walk into sin step by step. Nobody falls into sin. We walk into sin step by step. Watch this. Verse 5, Judges chapter 3. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives. Uh Uh-oh. First problem. And gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Second problem. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Kushan Rishathaim. Say that three times fast. King of Mesopotamia, we'll just call him Cush. 
And the sons of Israel served Cush eight years. So what's going on here? Nobody falls into sin game. We walk into sin. Did you catch the order? First, Israel lives among the Canaanites. They didn't drive them out of the land like they were told to. Drive them out. Drive them back. Clear the land of them. But they didn't. And they decided, we can handle it. We can deal. It's not that big a problem. So they lived among. I have friends in high school. Man, I could, I could go to parties where drinking and drugs are going. Not a big deal. I can handle I'm not going to drink myself. I'm not going to do what they're doing. I'm just going to be there. And that's what Israel's doing. I can handle it. We can handle it. We'll just live alongside them. Peacefully. We'll be among them. And so, as they got comfortable, they said, Hey, this kid's alright. I'm going to marry my daughter to him. Hey, she's pretty, pretty alright herself. I'm going to marry her myself. And they begin to intermarry. Now they're mingling and connecting in ways that they cannot break free of. Then they serve their gods, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the cycle of judgment begins. Cycle of judgment. I talked about it Sunday and last Wednesday. Let me repeat it again. The cycle of judgment throughout this book. Israel begins with compromise. And then they chase after other gods. And then they are crushed by their enemies. Then they cry out to the Lord, save us. And the Lord compassionately delivers them. And so they come back to the Lord. Hallelujah. Until they compromise again. And the whole process goes again and again, over and over, through this season of Israel's life. And this is the truth about sin. Israel gives us the picture right here. First, they are in the land. Then they're surrounded by the people. Then they're marrying the people. Then they're serving the people's gods. Then they forget God altogether. And then they are crushed and have to cry out to the Lord for help. James also tells us in James 1.13, When each one is tempted, he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then lust, has, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Psalm 1 tells us this, shows us this pattern of sin, how we walk into it. We don't fall into it. We say, oh, no, I just fell. It just surprised me. No, you didn't. <laughs> You've been walking that way for a long time. That's why you ended up in it. And every single one of us, if you think about the sin in your own life, and I'm not here to judge you, I've got it in my, in my own life, but if you think about the sin in your life and really look at it, did you just suddenly get shocked by sin? Or did you start down a path where ultimately you found yourself in the middle of it? That's the pattern. And the psalmist nails it. He says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. First you're walking. Or stand in the path of sinners kind of checking it out or sit at the seat of the scoffer starts out by that walk and then standing and then sitting down in the middle of the mess and what does sin ultimately do it causes us to scoff the righteousness of God the psalmist says the delight of the man who does not do this is in the law of the Lord and his, in his law he meditates day and night so Israel's now gone around the horn from compromise to chasing other gods to being crushed by the enemy to crying out to the Lord and that's where we are right now. They cry out to the Lord. Save us, Lord. Verse 9. Enter the first judge, Othniel. The first judge, Othniel. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. You're going to see that verse repeated several times throughout this book. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Watch this, verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him 
And he judged, that is, delivered Israel. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cush, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cush. Verse 11, Then the land had rest forty years. Another pattern you'll see in this book. The land will be given rest for forty years. Oftentimes, after a judge delivers, there's a forty-year period of rest. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Now again, remember, the word judge means deliverer. But did you notice again there in verse 10 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him? This is something we see often in the Older Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures. That is the Spirit of the Lord coming upon people. Because gang, among the Jewish people, God did not have His Spirit reside in them. That's something that was new. Jesus brought that on the scene after His death, burial, and resurrection. When He said to the apostles in John chapter 20, in verse 22, He breathed on them and He said, Receive the Spirit. Suddenly for the first time, and Peter reiterates this in Acts chapter 2, Repent and be baptized every one of you. Chapter 2 verse 38, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the first time in history, wow, man can have the indwelling Spirit of God. In Othniel's day, and Ehud and the rest of the judges, they didn't have the indwelling Spirit. The Spirit had to come upon them. And then God's Spirit was with them. But the Spirit that came upon them could just as easily be removed as we see happen later on in the person of the king, first king, Saul. The Spirit comes upon Othniel. And I need you to understand this. I believe it's very biblical that not only do we have the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we can also, and we've talked a lot about this through Judges or through Joshua, we also can have the Holy Spirit come upon us in power. There is the indwelling of the Spirit. There is also the coming upon of the Spirit to empower us. What to, Rick? Listen, Jesus says in Luke 11, 11:13, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He will give more of His Spirit to empower us. Again, what for? Acts chapter 1, verse 5. Jesus said you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I pointed it out before. You need to hear this. In John chapter 20 verse 22, Jesus had already given the apostles the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. That was the point that they received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As any Christian who claims Jesus can receive the indwelling of the Spirit. One of the keys to that is baptism. Acts 2.38, read the verse yourself. We receive that indwelling of the Spirit, just as the apostles did when Jesus breathed on them, John chapter 20. Now later, in Acts chapter 1 verse 5, he says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is a second account, a second event. It's not the first one. They already had the Holy Spirit. But now you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He puts it this way in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, so that I can be emotional and experiential? No. So that you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The power to witness, to testify, to speak the word of Christ in the right season at the right time. The power to serve. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul talks all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are gifts for the body to serve. 
So if you've received the Holy Spirit in your faith in becoming a Christian, but you're not really sure that you have the power, in fact, you're feeling weak and you're not sure if you're up to the whole Christian walk, maybe you need to be asking the Lord for the empowering of the Spirit to witness and to serve. Because both are very clear indications, at least in the Bible as I read it, both are options and available to us. The Holy Spirit is in us and that's good, but the Holy Spirit can also come upon us as He does on Othniel with the power to witness, to serve, and in Othniel's case, and I believe ours too, to deliver. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. So Othniel had the Spirit of the Lord come upon him, and he delivers. And the land has rest for 40 years, but listen, Othniel was not anyone special. In fact, the only qualification that I can read in Scripture for Othniel being the first judge and having the Holy Spirit on him is that he was Caleb's little brother. That's it. It doesn't say that Othniel was a greatly righteous man. Othniel spent all his days at the tabernacle. Othniel was on his knees in prayer constantly. It just says he was Caleb's younger brother, and that's all the qualifications he had. Why are you pointing this out? So that we see that it's not his qualifications that makes him a great deliverer. It's the power of the Holy Spirit upon him. And the same is with us, gang. The same is true. It's not our power. It's the power of the Spirit on us that makes it happen. Verse 12. Going on, now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. I love this story. Verse 13. He gathered to himself the sons of Ammon and Amalek, and they went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. That's Jericho. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Eglon, it is the perfect name for this man. The perfect name. Eglon, verse 17, is going to tell us in biblical wording, in true biblical flair and style, Eglon was a very fat man. (laughs) Ancient records indicate his waist. Check this out. His waist may have been as large as 480 inches around. Wow. And I thought a size 34 was bad. (laughs) But this Moabite king forms an axis of evil against Israel, and it's including who is involved in this axis. It's the Ammonites, the Amalekites, and the Moabites. Why is that important? Listen, the Moabites and the Ammonites descended from the same father, a man named Lot, Abraham's nephew. The Ammonites and the Moabites, they both came out of the incestuous relations that Lot's two daughters had with their father after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Genesis 19 tells that story. The Amalekites, they came directly out of Esau's line from Esau's grandson, Genesis 36, verse 12. So this axis of evil, the Amalekites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites, they go back, they have ties to Israel that go back six to seven hundred years before this. And all of these nations are biblical examples of the flesh and of carnality and of worldliness. And it's summed up beautifully in this very fat king named Eglon. You can call him Ego, whatever you need to call him. He was probably a rather egg-shaped man. And it tells us that this axis of evil, man, they came in, they, they invaded Israel, and they took hold of the city of palm trees, Jericho. Why Jericho? Well, it's a city of palms, and it was known for its fruitfulness, which obviously would, would attract a man like Eglon. 
Lots to eat there. It's a good place to be. And so off Eglon goes. For 18 long years, Eglon was fat, dumb, and happy over all of Jericho. Enter the second judge, Ehud. And I like Ehud. Watch this, verse 15. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord... The Lord raised up a deliverer for them. We've read that verse before. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Ehud. Now this is interesting to me. Ehud Barak was the prime minister who preceded Ariel Sharon in Israel. The prime minister who follows Ariel Sharon, who has had the stroke and subsequent coma, is Ehud Omert. You have two prime ministers of evil, both whose name were Ehud, Ehud Barak, Ehud Omert, and their name means united, which is curious to me because both Ehud Barak before and Ehud Omert after, though their names mean united, both of these prime ministers have divided or sought to divide the land. Ehud Barak was the first prime minister of Israel to offer to give up 98% of what the Palestinians were asking for including the Golan Heights including Gaza including the entire West Bank and East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount Ehud Barak was ready to give away the farm Ariel Sharon came along but now followed by Ehud Omer whose approval rating is the worst of any Prime Minister in the history of Israel and he's still trying to chop up the land A man whose name means united. Well, Ehud did, the real Ehud, the first Ehud, did unite Israel under his cause. But Ehud was a Benjaminite. Ehud's only qualifying characteristic as a judge should have disqualified him. Because he was left-handed. And to be left-handed in this time in Israel was to be cursed. If you are a left-handed person, you are a cursed person, and yet along comes left-handed Ehud. And it's interesting to me because being a Benjaminite, does anyone remember what the name Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. Son of my right hand. So Ehud, this left-handed Benjaminite, whose name means son of my right hand, but he can't be right-handed because he's left-handed. And by the way, the scripture, the text, indicates that it's possible this left-handed man, it may have been because he was handicapped. That he had the right hand, but it was useless or shriveled or unusable by him. And so the son of my right hand is a left-handed, cursed individual, and he's the one God chose. I love that. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise. And the foolish things to shame those who are intelligent. And God chose the opposite to show us that it's him. In this case, God chose a southpaw. So what? So watch. Verse 15 going on says, And the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. By the way, note that Israel here is trying to appease Eglon. They're sending tribute to him. Maybe if we just send enough food, (laughs) this guy will leave us alone. Another round of hamburgers for Eglon and maybe we'll be alright. My friends, appeasement never works with an oppressor. The United Nations would do well to pay attention. Appeasement never works with an oppressor. Compromise, giving in, offering tribute, 
writing up another resolution. All feeding the enemy does is make him fatter. That's all it does. And more hungry. Good. And so they're giving tribute to Eglon, but Ehud, Ehud's got another plan. He's got something up his sleeve. Watch verse 16. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges. A double-edged sword. Hmm. A cubit in length. A cubit is about 18 inches, so this is a small sword. It's more like a large knife. But he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. That's important to note. Bound on his right thigh and under his cloak. Now it tells us, where are we? Verse 17, he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. See, I wasn't kidding. There it is. Verse 18, it came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. But he himself turned back from the idols, which were at Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he, that is Eglon, said, Keep silence. And all who attended him left him. And so Ehud, verse 20, came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, Eglon, arose from his seat. And Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Isn't that gross? Can you picture that? I mean, I thought about this. There's no way I can describe that better. The fat closes over the blade. Ehud loses his sword inside King Eglon. It closes up. And here's the reason we learned this guy was left-handed. God knew something none of us could have known. When you draw across the body, as a right-handed guy, you'd have the sword on your left thigh. You draw across. That's the way you drew the sword. But Ehud drew across the opposite way. Why is that important? Well, it's entirely likely that those who were security, the the special security, secret service for King Eglon, would have checked the left thigh, but not the right. Because they would have assumed if he had a sword, it would be hanging on the left. So check, okay, no sword, he's good. And meanwhile, he has it on the right thigh all along. And this left-handed man is able to pull the sword and drive it in. The Lord knows what he's doing. And listen, my friends, God made Ehud the way he wanted him to be. God made Ehud left-handed. Though the people at the time thought it a curse, it wasn't a curse. It was God's plan all along. Even if he was handicapped, it was God's plan all along. God made him that way because God had a purpose for him. God knew what he was doing. Growing up, I wonder if Ehud ever asked the Lord, Why'd you make me a lefty? Why'd you do this to me? Why do I have this little shriveled right arm if in fact he did? Why can't I be strong like the other kids? Right now I'm reading a book with my my son Hayden. It's called The Great Brain, which is a really funny book. And in this book, The Great Brain, one of the main uh, characters, a little 10-year-old kid named J.D., is going to help his other little 10-year-old friend do himself in. Because his other 10-year-old friend has a peg leg because he lost half his leg due to gangrene. And he's, he's sitting there and he's just, he's just beside himself upset because he heard his dad tell his mom that he was good for nothing. And he was useless ever since he lost his leg. 
as the story rounds out, the other main character, J.D.'s brother Tom, he begins to teach this kid how to use the leg to his advantage. Ehud was made the way he was made. A lot of times when we're, we're you know, decrying the things that happen to us, or the way we look, or the, the way our bodies function, or why is my body shutting down in this way or that way, or why, why, why aren't I strong like him, or smart like her, or musical like, like them? Why can't I be? And the Lord's going, Hello, Creator? Master? Maker? You are who you are. You are the way you are because I made you that way. And your job is not to whine and moan and complain about it. Your job is to find out why. Yet if you're left-handed, Lord, how can I use my left hand like Ehud for you? Psalm 139.13 should sum it up for us. You formed me. You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it full well. Theocentric, you made me this way. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. And Paul sums it up even more powerfully in Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 10. We are His workmanship. By the way, the Greek word for workmanship in Ephesians 2.10 is poema. It's where we get our word poem. We're God's poetry. We are handwritten, handwoven by the Lord for His design, His purpose, created in Christ Jesus, Paul said, for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So He creates us the way He does, and He creates the good works so that we'll walk in them. We don't even make the good works up. He does and calls us into that that we might serve Him same way Ehud did. So instead of questioning our creation, the Lord invites us to offer what and who we are for His use. Theocentric thinking. His sovereignty versus my humanity. It was His sovereignty that created my humanity to be used by His sovereign will. And so... There's much more to this story. We're going to look into it more. We're going to come back to it on Sunday and spend a little time with Ehud just because I want the whole church to hear about that knife leg going in. It was just gross. The refuse came out. I mean, what a great picture. We're going to look at that more on Sunday. You can look forward to that. Verse 23. Then, the story continues, Ehud went out into the vestibule and shut the doors on the roof of the roof of the chamber and locked them behind him. Verse 24. When he had gone out, Eglon's servants came and looked and behold the doors of the roof chamber were locked and they said he's only relieving relieving himself in the cool room and that's exactly what it means the phrase there is he was covering his feet that's the Old Testament biblical phrase for going to the bathroom this is what they thought Eglon, Eglon was doing so they waited verse 25 until they became anxious but behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Verse 26. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and came and escaped to Sierra. Verse 27. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. And he said, verse 28, Pursue! 
For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. And so they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan, along with the Chevys and the... Okay, sorry. The fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. There are times I really think if I just throw in a word like that, the Fords, the Chevys, and the GM trucks, and just kept reading, would you catch it? Some no, some yes. (laughs) Okay, so I went down the Fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and they did not allow anyone to cross. Verse 29, they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites. All the robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed now for 80 years, double that of before. Now they get 80 years of peace, and that's great. By the way, the translation in verse 28 is a little bit off. You might see in your translation, they say, pursue them. It's not pursue them while I stay here and get a Coke. It is literally, follow me. What he shouts out here isn't pursue them, go get them. I've done my work. I've thrust the sword into the belly of the king. I'm hanging out here and you guys go get them. It's follow me! Charge! And the first one out, the first one leading the charge was Ehud. Left-handed, Benjamite Ehud, he comes rushing out first. The Deliverer gang, I like this, listen, the Deliverer says, follow me. The Deliverer says, follow me. Matthew 4.18, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon who was called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. The Deliverer says, follow me. The Deliverer goes first. When Jesus says to you and when Jesus says to me, take up your cross and follow me, He has the right to ask us to do so because the Deliverer went first. Because the Deliverer already took up his cross, already was hung up on his cross, already was taken out on the cross at Calvary. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Why, Jesus? Because I will first. I'll blaze the trail. I'll go first. John 8, 12, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 26, if anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Get the picture? Jesus-centered, God-centered, theocentric thinking as opposed to man-centered thinking. Now there's one more judge, one last deliverer for tonight, and we're finished. And he only takes one verse, so we're about done. After him, this is after Ehud, after him came Shamgar, the son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. What's an ox goad? Well, I mentioned on Sunday, an ox goad is the equivalent of a cattle prod. An ox goad. It was the instrument used for driving the oxen. Had a sharp, pointy uh, end on one side and then a flat, uh, flattened end on the other side. And this was used by farmers to guide their oxen when they were plowing their fields. What does that tell us about Shamgar? Shamgar, this great deliverer of Israel, was a was a farmer. Why would he have it? That's all he had was an ox goad. He didn't have a sharpened two-edged sword like Ehud. 
Okay, he didn't have the, the, the background of an Othniel, the younger brother of Caleb. He just had a cattle prod. He just had an ox goad. That was the instrument of his trade. That was the tool of this man. He was simply a farmer, but this farmer had at his disposal a cattle prod. He used, my friends, what he had when the Lord called him. And when he used what was already in his hands, through the power of God, he wiped out 600 Philistines with that little ox goat. Now, I don't know how many of you have seen farmers with cattle prods and seen how effective those things are. I mean, they work against the cows, sure. But 600 armed Philistines? This is another work. It's the power of God. And it points us out this one last thing to note. It is not about you, and it is not about your lack of skill. I was talking with a dear sister just this last weekend. Plagued with this thought. You're nothing. You don't have anything to offer. You don't have anything to give. Guess what? You give what you have. What is in your hand? Shamgar had an ox goat in his hand. That's all he had. And the, and the Lord called him as a deliverer and he went and he took the ox goat and he fought with it. Use what is in your hand for the Lord. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. What is in your hand? Now stop looking around at what everybody else has and what they're capable of doing. Aaron is a great plumber. Every time I try to do anything in my house related to water, there's a flood. Every time. And the last one lasted almost 40 days and nights. It was awful. But Aaron has in his hands an ability. How can you plumb for the Lord? He already has. Also, by the way, is youth pastoring for the Lord, so I'm not sure how the plumbing's going to work out. Maybe that, that wrench will be useful with the teenagers. I don't know. Use what you have. What is in your hand? Peter was a fisherman. What did Peter have in his hand? He had a net. And so Jesus says, good, I'll make you a fisher of men. I'm going to use what you know, Peter. Paul was a scholar. So what was in Paul's hand? A pen. And he wrote most of the books that we have in the New Testament. Because this scholar, God said, you got a pen in your hand. Let's use that. A little boy had a few loaves and some fish. And 5,000 people were fed. Shamgar the farmer had an ox goat and he delivers Israel. What do you have in your hand? What have you got? One of the most famous of the parables of Jesus, and you all are familiar with this, is the parable of the talents. Where the one servant is given by his master five talents, and another servant is given two talents, and another servant is given one. The master says, take care of these while I'm away, and he goes away. And when he comes back, he goes to the first servant. And the first servant says, you gave me five, but now I have ten. I invested. I doubled your, your talents. And the Lord is pleased. The Master is pleased. He goes to the next one. He gave me two. Now I've got four. And and by the way, you may be a two-talent person. You might not be the five-talent guy. You might not be the person who has, Whoa, you can just do this, 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 and this. He does everything for the Lord. All I can do is this. Then do it. Double what he's given you. Because he goes to the guy with one talent. He says, How about you? How'd you do? Well, I buried the talent. Because I knew you were harsh and I was afraid that if I did anything, you know, and it didn't work out right, you'd come down hard on me. Well, he did come down hard on him. But to the two who took what they had in their hand, five talents for one guy, two talents for the other, 
They used it. It's all they had. They used it. And the Master said, Matthew 25, 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear those words. I want to hear my father, my Abba, say that to me. When he calls me up, I want to look into the eyes of Jesus and weep with joy when he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. And then he says, and I love this, Enter into the joy of your master. You want to know the joy of the Lord? Serve him with what you've got. Just take what's in your hand. Shamgar, he gets one verse. One verse in the whole Bible for this judge. Ehud gets a whole story. Othniel gets several verses. Deborah's going to get two chapters. Gideon will get three. Shamgar gets one verse. But you know what? He goes down in history among the deliverers of Israel because he used what was in his hand. Othniel, Caleb's little brother, was spirit-filled. Ehud was a southpaw but used his left hand for the Lord. Shamgar, just a little farmer, but he used his ox goad. And so I want to leave you with this question tonight. What do you have? What's in your hand? What has God already given you? And stop looking elsewhere. You say, Lord, I've got this. Can you use this? Will you use this? Next week we'll come to the fourth judge, the only female deliverer, Deborah. But for tonight, let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the example of these deliverers who simply used what they had. And I pray that you will teach us to do the same, to stop looking for the big gifts and the the important and impressive things and just look into our hands. Look into our situations. Father, the place you have us at work, the, the school that we attend, the people that we may have influence on those who we can share what's in our hands with and may we all just open our hands to you to be used by you and Father one last thing I ask would you make our minds theocentric teach us to be as you taught Israel eventually to be teach us to be God centered believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.